Hey there, hi there, and ho there, podcast listeners. This is Chase Carrico back with you with another episode of Spotlight Impressions. We have some playoff basketball going on for the NBA right now. Uh, I am very exuberant and excited and proud because, dare I say, my Boston Celtics defeated the Milwaukee Bucks in seven games in the Eastern Conference semifinals and have advanced to go play the Miami Heat for the right to play in the finals. Before we look forward, let us look back at the series with the Milwaukee Bucks. As this was kind of their send-off, I'd like to talk about them. I'll talk a little bit about what the Celtics were able to do right, but a lot of it is going to be some adjustments that I thought the Bucks could make. Most of my commentary in this podcast is going to be about Milwaukee in the first half of this year. Uh, some things that I noticed in the series, some of my takeaways. I've, I, a lot of my opinions of the Celtics are not etched in stone, but they've been there for quite a while. And I feel like even after having watched the Bucks win an NBA championship last year, I had a lot more to learn about them in this series. One important uh, vital thing to know is that Chris Middleton, probably at least by my estimation, the second best player for Milwaukee, was out in this series. He was unable to play after getting injured in Game 2 of their first-round series against the Chicago Bulls, and that had a huge impact on how things were playing out. So let's start with the obvious. Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, he's good. That's no surprise. Uh, he averaged about 34 points, 15 rebounds, and 7 assists in these, this series. I tried to look up and see if those numbers had ever been accomplished before. I'm not sure that they have, but I wasn't able to get a uh, confirmation on that. But he's very good. Uh, despite losing, I definitely think he was the best player in this series. He only shot 46% from the field, which doesn't sound horrendous, but... He's not used to shooting that poorly. The Celtics used a lot of Grant Williams and Al Horford on him. I have seen, even in past years, Al Horford play Giannis pretty well, but I was surprised just how well he was able to do it for a seven-game series. Uh, Last time I saw Al Horford guard Giannis as a member of the Celtics, in the playoffs, he kind of shut him down for a game. That came back in 2019, back when Kyrie Irving was still with the Celtics. What a weird world that was. And for all of us still following the Kyrie saga, still is. Uh, But after that one game, the Celtics won game one. The Bucs made some adjustments. Horford, I think, kind of started to slow down. And the Bucs won the next four to eliminate Boston. Um, That was a few years ago. Now, uh, both teams look a little bit different, but have... Mostly the same key pieces. Of course, Drew Holiday's a big addition and a few other things. But uh, I was really surprised that Al Horford was able to do this for nearly the entire series. Uh, That said, he did not have to do it alone, which I think was huge. Grant Williams played a phenomenal role in this series as well. His offense was up or down. It was extremely up in Game 7, of course. Um, We will talk about that later in this podcast, but he played a really good defensive series against Giannis when he was given that challenge. I did not think going into the series that that was going to be particularly effective. 
not because Grant Williams isn't a great defender, he really is, but at, he's about six foot six, and I just thought that size difference was going to be too much, that Giannis would be too physically imposing or would be able to shoot his little jump hooks or his little push shots just right over him. And really, he was just so strong and sturdy that he, and agile. It takes a combination of all of that to slow down Giannis because nobody stops him. Uh, but Grant Williams was really able to do that, and that was huge for them as well. Uh, I did feel like... Giannis took several threes, too many, way more than he needed to. Uh, he was 7 for 28 for, for the series, but that seems a little bit high. He started 2 for 16, that was in the first four games. He finished 5 for 12 in the final three, but at that point it was too little too late. The Celtics were starting to take a more firm control of the series. Uh and I just, I kind of do think he was exhausted by the time we got to Game 7, because while he was good, he missed some shots that I really expected him to make. Um, and when I say he was just good in Game 7, he had, I think, 25 points, 20 rebounds, and 9 assists. So nearly going for a 20-20-10 triple-double in a Game 7 on the road, <laughs> being a somewhat disappointing game, shows you just how much I think of Giannis. I think he was the best player in this series, despite my admiration for Jason Tatum. Tatum outdueled him for a game in Game 6, but for the most part, Giannis is clearly the best player on the floor at pretty much of any given time. I think next up, logically, I would go to Drew Holiday as the next guy to talk about. Uh, probably, again, the second best player for Milwaukee when Chris Middleton is unable to play. Uh, he had a very interesting series. He was really frustrating to watch, uh, probably from a Bucks fan's perspective on the offensive side, which I think we got a good taste of last year, particularly in the eastern side of the bracket of the playoffs. Uh, I thought he cleaned it up a little bit more in the Phoenix series, but um, as an offensive player, he's, just, he's pretty up and down. He's just so good defensively and has a knack of making these huge plays and big moments. Uh, I don't understand why Boston attacked him as much as they did. Um, when Boston had the ball, they settled for a lot, especially early in the series, of dribbling against Drew Holiday. I, again, I'll, I'm going to complain a little bit too much about the officials. I did think he got away with a lot of hand checks, a lot of fouls, that was just able to get the Celtics rattled and uncomfortable throughout the series, um, but played outstanding defense for most of the series while being the number two option on offense. That said, he did not ha have the most efficient series. He shot 36% from the field, 30% from three, um, taking a significant amount of shots. Um, Giannis and Holiday were the only two Bucks who averaged more than 20 field goal attempts a game. Giannis was at 28 Holiday was at 22, and again, getting at 36% shooting on that 22 attempts per game, not the greatest look. Uh, of course, one of the biggest takeaways is that Holiday had a f just frenetic, awesome stretch at the very end of the game that turned the tide in Game 5 that gave the Bucks what felt like a commanding 3-2 series lead. Of course, in hindsight, it was not insurmountable as a series lead, but winning that game was 
uh, a real gut punch for Boston at the time. Uh, I, again, he's just a strange offensive player. I'm convinced he's capable of shooting the same percentage in the finals as he is in practice. Uh, and not just like the pressure of it, but not being defended in practice. He just seems to kind of fail to make routine plays sometimes. Uh, he gets open looks and misses them, and then he'll take what just seems to be an incredibly ill-advised shot and knock it down. Uh, so he's got the talent to do it, he's just a little bit inconsistent. I could say a really similar thing about Jalen Brown. They are both good at hitting difficult and really big shots and making big plays, but sometimes you're a little bit disappointed with the consistency or the ability to make the easy play. One of the next guys I wanted to talk about was Wesley Matthews. I really, I, I think the Achilles tear early in his career had me kind of write him off because that injury is so difficult to come back from. It seems like it takes a few years to come back, uh, which is, of course, very difficult, and it's hard to imagine what kind of mental impact that would have on a player. But he was much better in this series than I thought he was going to be. I thought he might be a weak link that the Celtics could attack. Um, on the defensive side of the ball, he was great. He really frustrated Jason Tatum, especially early in the series. Uh, thought he played outstanding defense. And then he knocked down some big crucial, crucial threes. Uh, he didn't do much else for them on offense, but only shot 33% from the field. But he also shot 33% from behind the line. And I thought that was pretty important for them to get something like that out of Wesley Matthews. A uh, few other players have got just kind of running down the line. A, a real head-scratcher for me. I did not understand why Grayson Allen played over Pat Connaughton. I really like Pat Connaughton and thought he was one of the better players in the series for them. But Grayson Allen and Connaughton got pretty similar playing time. Grayson Allen started over Connaughton. I do feel like when it came down to crunch time at the end of the fourth quarter of most of the games when it was still competitive... Connaughton was the one out there over Allen, but I just thought they really needed to replace some of those minutes. I think uh, while Connaughton might not be the best defender, he is very athletic, and I think a better d defender than Grayson Allen is. Really, the only thing I can think of that Grayson Allen might do better than Connaughton is dribble, because I, I trusted Connaughton making his shots more. I trusted his passing. I trusted his defense more. Uh, he's <laughs> Connaughton has the silkiest catch-and-shoot three in the corner. The amount of time the ball is in his hands is incredibly small. It, it seemed like he could catch it and flick it in about two-tenths of a second, and accurately. He made plenty of threes in the series that had me somewhat unhappy. Uh, there were only two players in the entire series for Milwaukee who shot over 50% from the field, Actually, there were not very many, only four that even shot over 40%. Um, and one of those was Pat Connaughton. He also shot 42% from three, which was the only volume shooter for Milwaukee who was doing much of anything. Uh, he really picked them out of some tough spots, especially when he came in off the bench. If they needed a punch, Connaughton had it. Grayson Allen did not. He didn't shoot very well. He shot 31% from the field, 21% from three. He was constantly picked on by the better offensive players for the Celtics. Jalen Brown was able to get a lot of momentum when Grayson Allen was guarding him. Jason Tatum picked on him every now and then. 
that was one of the easiest sources of offense for Boston was just finding Grayson Allen, getting him in some kind of action to where he would get stuck on an island with one of their better players, and they'd end up getting a good look. They weren't perfect looks. It wasn't like he was getting blown by for layup after layup, especially with the rim protection that Milwaukee typically has. But I, I just thought Grayson Allen was a huge net negative for them. I felt like, for the most part, Connaughton was a net positive, and I, I just I'm confused as to why he did not play more. Now these next couple of players, this might be a little bit of a hot take from me. Uh, I'm fine being wrong if I am. Uh, maybe I just have some blinders on. I'd like to talk about Brooke Lopez and Bobby Portis. Both of them clearly brought some things to the table more so than the other. Um, I think the Bucks really wanted to be able to rely on both of them, whether just having one of them on the court at a time, or they like to have a three-big lineup every now and then that has Portis and Giannis essentially at two forward positions with Brooke Lopez at center. Um, one of my biggest takeaways, and I've thought this basically every time I've seen him, they call, they don't call him Splash Mountain for nothing. Lopez looks like he's about eight feet tall. And he's one of the hugest players I have ever seen. He's not round or thick like Shaq is, but just like the vertical amount of space that Brooke Lopez takes up between his actual height and the wingspan, how high his arms can get up above his head, is just mind-bending to me. Um, and he used that to his advantage. I didn't necessarily think he was the best at securing rebounds, but particularly in the middle of the series, like games four and five, I felt like he was tipping out every single rebound. He was able to, with the free throws that Milwaukee would miss, he just would bull rush two different Celtics who were trying to box him out. It's not something that I think you could call a foul. It's just fighting for the ball. He would win the fight. And then even if he couldn't secure the rebound himself, he would tap it out and get Milwaukee another possession. I really felt that was when Milwaukee was at their best. I don't think it's really a question because they were struggling pretty heavily to make baskets or score period when Boston was able to set their defense. But whenever they were able to create create transition, uh, they did that, of course, by forcing turnovers and missed shots. But even sometimes when the Celtics would make a basket, they would take it out of the net, sprint up the court, beat the Celtics back, and score before they set the defense. And the other way was just by making more possessions through offensive rebounds the key to success, and I think as we look forward to the Miami series, it's going to be a lot of the same thing, was whoever was going to possess the ball more, especially if one team was going to be able to get a reasonably large uh, difference there, in which was the case in some of the games in the series, especially Game 5. Um, so that was some of the stuff he did well. I also thought, at least at times, he uses his size so incredibly well in the paint to make what shots that would be difficult for a lot of other people. He has one of the most potent hook shots I've seen in the modern NBA. He is really disciplined when trying to tap putbacks back into the rim. He's got a really good floater game for the pick and roll where uh, if a defender tries to come in and help, he can just pop a little 10 or 12 footer over the top, and he's very accurate with those. 
Um, I did refer to him as Splash Mountain earlier. The splash part of that was not as noticeable as the mountain part. He was only 1 for 13 for 3 for the series, which was something that I don't think they were anticipating. Uh, and that one make came in Game 7, so he went most of the series without hitting a 3 whatsoever. He played a good amount of minutes uh, between him and Bobby Portis, it was fairly close. Um, he actually played 10 more minutes than Portis did in the series. Uh, a lot of people were wanting more Bobby Portis minutes. Uh, Bobby is not my favorite player, so I did not necessarily want more Bobby Portis minutes. Other than at times, I really did think Brooke Lopez was intimidating in the paint. The Celtics solved that to some extent by stretching him out, trying to get him attached to somebody who could knock down open looks. Uh, and sometimes that was the key to the game. If a three-point shooter that was assigned onto Lopez or that Lopez was assigned to missed a bunch of shots, Lopez was able to kind of stay in the paint. They got the missed shots from his guy as well as him altering any kind of shot that came from some other player attacking the rim. And then if the guy that Lopez was attached to was able to make threes, that was a huge advantage for Boston. Uh, huge, huge advantage for Boston in Game 7. And that's where, um, I, I, obviously that's where the series was won, but that's kind of felt like the key for the entire series, and it was just really glaring in that final game. They, they were able to make so many threes. Grant Williams led the team by far in three-point attempts in that final game. Uh, he made, Grant Williams himself made more threes than the Bucks did in Game 7, and that was in large part due to the defensive scheme that the Bucks had drawn up and frankly just failed to adjust to. I, I think you have two options in that scenario. Uh, you could either cut Lopez's minutes and use a lot more Bobby Portis, as some people wanted, or you could just change your defensive scheme a little bit. Tell Lopez that he is enabled to run players off of the three-point line because I know he can do that. He's big, but he can cover a lot of ground quickly. He can contest shots more diligently than he did, but they just seemed so focused on keeping him somewhat close to the paint, and that left a lot of shooters getting good looks, and some of the games that the Bucks won, it felt like at least part of the reason was that the Celtics were missing some of those open threes that Lopez gave up. And some of the games that the Celtics did win, one of the big reasons that they won was because they were making the threes that he gave up. So, again, to me it felt like they had two options to kind of remedy that issue, and they chose to do neither of those things. Uh, Bobby Portis had some pretty big games. Of course, he was another hero in Game 5, which kind of felt a little more like the Drew Holiday game, but Portis was the one that came in with the huge offensive rebound with 11 seconds left and had the go-ahead basket, but overall, I mean, he was another one of them that shot under 40% from three. He got incredibly frustrated in game seven. You could see he wanted to be playing better than he was. Uh, the The issue between Lopez and Portis was really, uh, it's something that if they're both on the roster again next year, which I imagine Milwaukee wants to do, I, th I think Milwaukee's going to be really good again next year. But that's going to be something to keep an eye on of if they can solve exactly what to do when one of those guys isn't working exactly the way that they should be. I will say, um, so 
nearly every player for Milwaukee in this series had a negative net rating, which I think speaks to the fact that Boston was the better team. I think it could have gone more like a five or six game series rather than seven. Uh, but even Giannis was minus 2.1 in net rating. Uh, the advanced numbers there do not support my argument that Lopez was better than Portis. But again, I think part of my ar- argument was that I would rather have Lopez out on the court. I just think he was being drastically misused, especially again in that game seven. But for the duration of the series, uh, Bobby Portis was a minus 6.2, uh, Giannis and Wes Matthews, and uh, one other player that we'll talk about in a second. Both were better than him, but he was the third best rotation player. Uh, you can't find Brooke Lopez until you get down to minus 18.1 in net rating. Uh, so as far as rotation players go, only George Hill was better than Lopez. Or sorry, <laughs> better. Only George Hill had a worse net rating than Brooke Lopez, and his was 19.5. Grayson Allen was just a little bit better at negative 14.1. So who was that special player that I was talking about a moment ago, you might ask? Well, that is none other than Javon Carter, the only member of the Milwaukee Bucks with a positive net rating for the series. He was a positive 17.3. Again, he was the only member of the team with a positive net rating, and it was 17.3. He had, he he was a coach's decision, did not play in one game. He had extremely limited minutes, really, in games three through seven of the ones that he did play. He played a little bit in games one and two, and I thought he looked good. Clearly, the net rating suggests that was the case as well. Uh, I definitely thought he was going to be a pest on defense. He was basically another Drew Holiday out there pestering Marcus Smart or whoever was bringing the ball up. Forced a lot of turnovers, especially game one. That was the game where the Celtics looked incredibly uncomfortable throughout the game. That was the only game that Milwaukee really dominated. The one game where I felt, I think Boston maybe even had a lead at the first quarter, but for most of the game, I felt like Boston was getting outplayed. I actually think that Boston outplayed them games two through seven. But again, that's when Carter's minutes started to get cut, especially because I didn't think George Hill was particularly good. I just thought that Javon Carter should have continued to get minutes. Uh, But whenever he was introduced into the series, Carter just pretty much disappeared. And not only was he the great defender that I was expecting him to be, but he, at least in my opinion, did not seem to be like he was missing anything on offense. He hit a couple of shots that I thought were pretty impressive. I didn't feel like he was turning it over or making bad decisions. I thought he was moving the ball around. Uh, there, It may just be a trust issue that uh, Budenholzer and the coaching staff, really, they know George Hill. They feel comfortable with him, and they would rather, if they're going to lose a game, they're going to lose with George Hill than they are with Javon Carter. But I, I thought that was one of the... Not a key to the series. I mean, maybe Javon Carter doesn't swing the entire thing, but I do think that Milwaukee does a better job with him on the floor, and I was just really surprised to see that his minutes got almost entirely cut out of the rotation. One more thing that is just puzzling to me about what the Bucks did in this series was their almost refusal to attack Peyton Pritchard's defense. Peyton Pritchard is one of the smallest players, In the NBA, he's the smallest player for the Celtics. 
He's uh he's listed at six two, but I don't I'm six two. I don't think he's taller than I am. Uh, he struggled a little bit on offense in this series, uh, but somehow def- did not struggle defensively so much. Part of that was because I think he really settled down and made a concerted effort to do everything he could on defense. But the other part of that is I just don't think Milwaukee took it to him. And I really think they could have gotten some advantages with that. Again, uh, the size advantage alone, even if Pritchard has the intelligence to play defense and the quickness to play defense, Giannis is like a seven-foot monster. And there were multiple times where Giannis got the ball and was able to get Peyton Pritchard to switch on him and then just passed out of it and never posted up or got the ball back. I don't know if that was just something that they overlooked or if for some reason that was a conscious decision, but they never attacked Pritchard. I didn't see Drew Holiday do it either. And as much as Drew Holiday would post up Al Horford and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, uh, he wasn't posting up Peyton Pritchard. Part of that is going to be that their minutes probably did not overlap that much. Peyton Pritchard comes off the bench. Giannis starts. Drew Holiday starts. There's probably a reason for that, but I know they did play minutes together on the court, and it was just very strange to see that they did not take advantage or even really attempt to take advantage of the size mismatch. Boston rarely ever has a weak link on defense. That's kind of the the tenant of what they are doing, and I think that's been huge as to why they're the best defense in the NBA right now. But I, I think Milwaukee even helped them a little bit more there too. So generally, that's what I learned about Milwaukee. Again, I don't want to talk too much about the Celtics here, but a couple of things that went right for them. Jason Tatum really struggled in the first couple games of this series, and I think he kind of figured a couple of things out later on. Uh, Just got a little bit more comfortable picking and choosing when he should be shooting. That was one of the awkward things about the Celtics in the first game or two, is really probably game one. They just seemed to be passing up a bunch of looks that they thought they should be taking, but never actually took. And I think they got a little bit more assertive in their shot selection. Started to figure that out a little bit more. Tatum just got more comfortable throughout the series. And you could pretty clearly see he was taking better shots. He was making more shots. He was making more difficult shots. Uh, Everything really started to click with Tatum. And once he got things going, once he and Smart and Brown and White, I mean, all of the main ball handlers started to figure things out, they started to put more pressure on that defense that, Drop defense collapsed a little bit more, and by the end of the series, the Celtics were getting most of the looks that they wanted. As a Celtics fan, I'm really happy moving forward. Um, They really didn't have to have Robert Williams in this series, who has been so important for him, or for them on defense in particular. Uh, But moving into this Miami series, I'm not going to talk about it a whole bunch, but I have a lot of reason for optimism. Uh, Miami's a really different team from Milwaukee, but they do have some similarities. I do see both of them as pretty good defensive teams. Kind of have uh, like a big Bam and Giannis are not the same player, but I think you could kind of view them in similar veins as far as having to attack a defense. They're both agile, strong, quick, long. They can test shots. Uh, and then you've got mostly a bunch of guards around them. I do see Miami being a little bit smaller. They still have length, but they aren't going to go with like a a two big or certainly not a three big lineup. 
like Milwaukee does some. But uh, some of the things that Boston did to attack Milwaukee, I think they're going to try to do with Miami. Uh, Miami and Boston are two of the best defensive teams in all of the NBA. I think it could quite often be a low-scoring game. I wouldn't be surprised to see games where neither team hit 100. Uh, and then you look at they, Milwaukee is... I think I'm coming out of the series underestimating Milwaukee's defense a little bit just because the Celtics were able to handle them okay. But when you run down their list, they might have a weak link on the court. But when you have Giannis Antetokounmpo, Drew Holiday, Wesley Matthews, and like Brooke Lopez as four of the players on the court, it should be a really good defense. And I kind of see something like that happening with Miami. Um, Milwaukee often had a weak weak link on the court like Grayson Allen you could maybe attack Pat Connaughton I felt like the Celtics were able to attack George Hill there are some players on Miami like that Duncan Robinson doesn't seem like he's playing a whole bunch he played he can play he's capable of okay defense but he's definitely not a strong defender certainly Tyler Hero is going to be playing a bunch in this series and I don't think he's a particularly strong defender. He has some length, but he can definitely be taken advantage of. Um, and then I'd be interested to see how like a player like Max Struess holds out. Max Struess was actually on the Celtics practice squad a couple years ago. He got a contract, but ended up not getting uh, a roster spot. He was, I think, the last man cut when they were finalizing rosters, but he have, had a great summer league with them, shot it well from three, and seems like he's kind of taken over Duncan Robinson's minutes. Uh, but I'll, I'll see if they can do that. And then a, a, another, again, injuries impacting playoff series. I, I don't know if Kyle Lowry is going to be healthy. He could probably be very much like a Drew Holiday for the team. Uh, but one of the just glaring things in the series is that the Celtics have played Kevin Durant and Giannis Antetokounmpo in the last two rounds. Miami doesn't have a player as good as that. Jimmy Butler may think he's that good. But Durant and Giannis are two of the probably five best, if not like two of the three best players in the NBA right now. Celtics didn't make Durant look like that. And uh, while Giannis was awesome, they certainly gave him struggles at different times. I I just think the Celtics are kind of built that way. And not only um, when you look at how good Durant and Giannis are, but they're also really large. The Heat just have a couple of players of that size, Bam Adebayo being one of them, uh, and he's certainly an intimidating physical specimen, but he's not as skilled as those other two players. So I think the Celtics match up fairly well. Both of these teams probably match up fairly well with one another. And we're going to be looking at perhaps something like P.J. Tucker on Jalen Brown and Jimmy Butler on Jason Tatum and Kyle Lowry on Marcus Smart. Um, I mean, that's just three phenomenal matchups. They might not go two ways if the Celtics can help it. Uh, It seems like there's optimism that Robert Williams, the Time Lord, will be able to play without a minutes restriction. I imagine they'll probably try to put him on someone like P.J. Tucker, who, while he can hit a three, they're not going to be worried about leaving him open for a second. I didn't see all of the Miami-Philadelphia series, but I definitely saw P.J. Tucker pass up some open shots. Even if Robert Williams leaves him open, he can close out really quickly and either make that shot difficult or convince Tucker not to take it at all. And I think that would play very well into Boston's advantage there. 
um, the last time uh, a couple years ago in the Eastern Conference Finals in the bubble, the Celtics and Heat played. I thought the Celtics might win that series, but they really just did not have an answer for Bam Adebayo. Daniel Tice ended up being the primary defender on him quite often, and he just wasn't quick enough, wasn't strong enough, wasn't big enough. Uh, I I really like Daniel Tice. I, I've enjoyed being a fan of him. I'm glad he came back to Boston for a second stint, but he's really best suited as your second or third center on the team. Uh, it, I, it would not surprise me if he has some DNPs in this series, if he has games where he doesn't play just because they want to keep Grant Williams and Al Horford and Robert Williams guarding Bam. Uh, it, if he plays, I think it would pr- probably align with minutes where Bam is on the bench, just because there's a history of Bam beating him pretty badly in the Eastern Conference Finals in particular. Uh, but I, I think Tatum's going to get more comfortable. I think the Celtics are going to be able to attack. Um, and again, I think the keys for Miami are going to be the same as the keys for Milwaukee of you just have to get turnovers and offensive rebounds. I think the Celtics really struggled to rebound against Milwaukee, and that was one of the things that kept the series close. I, I would not be surprised if they got out-rebounded my, by Miami, but I don't think the rebounding margin is going to be as vast as it was in that series. If If they can turn down the turnovers, which again, when you play a series where you're playing against Wesley Matthews and Giannis and Drew Holiday, I think you really have to tighten your handle. Celtics learned it the hard way in a couple of games, and I I am hoping that they took from that a little bit more composure, and they're going to be composed in this Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, I think it's going to be really competitive. I'm not going to be surprised if Miami wins. The Celtics are probably exhausted from their series, and they're I mean, if this series goes seven games, they're going to end up playing 12 games in 23 days, which is kind of preposterous, and I can't believe the schedule broke like that. But uh, I, I do just generally think both the Celtics are a slightly better team, and I mentioned Miami doesn't have a player as good as Giannis or Kevin Durant. I personally don't think Miami has a player as good as Jason Tatum. Uh, if Jason Tatum is the best player in this series and I believe the Celtics should be the better team in this series. They should win. Uh, If home court was flipped, Miami is the one seed. They're going to get the home court advantage in the series. Uh, Three of the first five games are going to be at home. I would have been really tempted to say Celtics in five. That's really bold. Um, But given both just probably the odds of mathematics and the fact that three of the first five games are going to be in Miami. I'm going to say Celtics and six for my series prediction here. Uh, looking forward to the series. A little bit nervous as a Celtics fan, but I have some cautious optimism that they have a real chance to make the finals. Again, I thought they could have made the finals two years ago in 2020, and they lost in the conference finals to this Miami team. Both teams have undergone some changes Um, I don't necessarily see Miami being significantly better. I think Jimmy Butler is probably the Jimmy Butler we had back then. Um, I don't know if Kyle Lowry is healthy. Bam has struggled with some health a little bit this year, and I'm not totally sure he is better in this exact date than he was two years ago. Uh, And meanwhile, Jalen Brown's probably a little bit better. I think Jason Tatum has taken a leap. I think Marcus Smart has been enabled and has been fantastic. They've traded for Derek White. They've got Al Horford back, who should be a better matchup for Bam Adebayo. 
Uh, I, I, I see a lot of good signs for Boston here. I could totally be wrong. I could be sad by the end of the series and eating my words. But I like Boston to win the series in, I mean, like five, six, seven games, probably around six. Um, looking forward to it. That series starts tomorrow night. And again, it's going to be every other day. Uh, so that's uh, a little bit of a recap of both the Eastern Conference semifinals between the Celtics and Bucks. Didn't really talk about the 76ers much. Um, and then looking forward to the Celtics and the Heat. Thank you always for listening. This has been another edition of Spotlight Impressions. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, please go find me on socials. Give me a follow. Uh, contact me. Communicate with me. I'd be happy to do some work with something that you're interested in doing, answering some questions. I've gotten a couple off of Twitter. A couple guys that I've been talking to going to be talking some uh, football, specifically some fantasy football for the NFL here in hopefully the next couple of weeks. I've got uh, several ideas that I'm going to be working on. going to be putting those out hopefully soon. Uh, but until then, take it easy. Uh, and just enjoy life, you know. Thank you.